Today's reading is from prophet Isaiah chapter nine. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in a pitch dark land. Light has dawned. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this time together, God. I pray that you bless Matthew as he comes before us, Lord, to deliver your word. I pray that you open up our hearts and that you help us to see what you've brought us all here to see and that you help us to hear what you've brought us here to hear. God, I pray that we are open to your word. I pray that we're open to this season of giving and to living out your love and your mercy and your goodness in our communities, in our families, with the people that we love and that we don't know. I thank you that all these things are already done in your name. Amen. Good morning. I, I pray for Matthew next week when he's bringing the message. Um, so that's a, a, a proactive prayer. Thank you, Nicole. Um, welcome to the first Sunday in December. The first day of December is the first uh, Sunday after Thanksgiving, and it is, as we've said already, the first Sunday in the season of Advent. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with Advent, there's a, a Christian liturgical or church calendar that, that's built around the high points of Christmas and Easter, but also Epiphany when, the, when we celebrate the wise men, um, and Lent, and Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and Pentecost. And uh, Advent is the, the four weeks leading up to Christmas that marks the beginning of this Christian calendar. It's actually sort of like Christian New Year. Um, the word Advent means arrival or coming. Namely, refers to the arrival or coming of Jesus to earth as a baby 2,000 years ago. And so the season of Advent is traditionally a time of preparation, preparing our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus, preparing our lives to, to once again welcome Christ. Now, it's not that we don't seek to do that all of the time, uh, but as we know, it can be helpful to, you know, to have days or seasons that focus us. Uh, just like uh, I hope that your birthday isn't the only time you feel celebrated or appreciated, but it can be a helpful focal point for everyone else to celebrate you and appreciate you. And so Advent is a time of preparation and anticipation, uh, looking forward to remember Jesus' birth, to celebrating what that momentous event meant and means. And, um, and so our sermon series, as Matthew's already mentioned, uh, is anticipating Advent, anticipating the, the arrival, looking forward to Jesus' coming. Uh, but before we, we look forward at the turn of this Christian New Year, I want to give a shout out to, to Thanksgiving, a day that isn't in the Christian liturgical calendar per se, but is uh, one of my favorite days of the year nevertheless. And in the spirit of giving thanks, I hopefully you've done this already in this last week, but I want you to think of one thing you're thankful for uh, from this week, this month, or this year. I'm not going to tell you to turn to your neighbor and share it. Introverts are sighing a breath of relief. But I want you to think about that thing, and hopefully it, it, it's not hard to, to draw that to mind. Uh, some of you uh, may know of this, this trend that folks on social media are doing as we prepare to enter a new decade in just a few weeks' time. I think it's called like the 10-year challenge. And so people are posting where they were in 2009 and then highlighting what's happened in, 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 the, in their lives over these, last 10, over these last 10 years, you know, what's been gained. It's sort of, a, it's, uh, it's sort of a giving testimony. And, um, and that's certainly one way to think about what you, you're thankful for. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't things uh, that we also mourn and grieve, 
uh, from the last decade, but giving thanks is an essential part of Christian life and practice. Thomas Merton would call it the heart of the Christian life. Uh, I won't go into everything that has happened in the last 10 years of my life, but I will say that I have now lived in D.C. for 10 years and three months. And so 10 years ago, I was a um, fresh-faced fresh intern here in D.C. Um, in recently, recently arrived in the city that has become uh, my home uh, when I expected to only be here for a, a, uh, a year. And um, 10 years ago, right around this time, this is actually my, my first trip, my very first trip to New York City, um, enjoying one of my favorite desserts. Is anybody folks familiar with what I'm eating there? All right, so I don't know what the official name of them is, but I've always called them egg bumps. And it's sort of like waffle dough, but instead of you know the divots, the holes, it kind of expands out, and then there's like gooey goodness inside. So if you're in a Chinatown somewhere and you see these on the street, Knock, hit, hit, hit him up, hit him up. Um, real talk though, one of the things that I have um, gained over the last 10 years is rounder cheeks. Um, I'm, I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> but I hope that, uh, that over the, 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 this last week or so, you have found time uh, or, or made time to give thanks, to acknowledge the blessings, to um, just to to acknowledge what God has done, because that practice is foundational for Advent. It's foundational that we, that we look back before we look forward. Um, the thing is, uh, I know that, that the next few weeks, um, for many of us, aren't particularly conducive to, you know, meditation or contemplation or, or thoughtful pre- preparation or soulful anticipation. The next few weeks uh, may be about preparation, but more often than not, it's about hectic preparation. Uh, completing end-of-year assignments, uh, making sure all of the gifts are, are bought and wrapped, figuring out holiday travel plans or holiday hosting plans, getting ready to navigate more family dynamics. And, on, and, and all of that is on top of our normal lives, uh, which don't stop, and that can already seem so full. And yet the story of Christmas is about the creator of the heavens and the earth and the still-expanding universe becoming a human being. And not just a human being, but a baby. And not just a baby, but a poor baby. And not just a poor baby, but a poor baby born in an overflow room and whose first bed was an animal's feeding trough. And the point is that the wonder of God, Jesus himself, shows up in the most unexpected places, the most overlooked places, the most out-of-the-way places. And I know there's a lot going on in the world and in our lives right now and for the coming weeks, but my hope is that as we are able to prepare, as we are able to anticipate, so we'll also be able to glimpse and grasp more deeply and fully all of the goodness and grace of God this Christmas, particularly when it shows up in unexpected places. Over the next few weeks, we want to prepare together as a church. We want to anticipate together. And we want to help you do that. And so our creative team, uh, namely Amy Sawyer and Allison Huang, worked up this prayer card for Advent that you may have seen when you came in or you can grab on your way out. Um, each week there's a, a scripture passage, there's a meditation and a reflection to help you focus your thoughts and your prayers. And then um, we didn't put these out earlier, but they will be on the table on your way out. There's, there are little beeswax candles to go along with that to sort of help um, set the moment to light, light a, a beeswax candle. These are, are from a Capitol Hill beekeeper, bee, bee um, so they're, they're locally sourced. Um, but you can grab both of these on your way out. 
And then each day this week, or, or, or even if you, can, if you can't make that, maybe once a week, just start there. Find a couple minutes to do this, whether at the beginning of your day, at the end of the day, wherever you can fit it in. Getting all of the things done that need to get done this season is a kind of preparation. But you can have all that lined up and all of that crossed off your list and still not have your heart ready. You know what I mean? So, so, so hear and receive the invitation to anticipate Advent, to prepare for the coming of Christ. Now, as a pastor, it may not surprise you that I think Jesus is pretty important. That Jesus is the answer to a lot of the questions we're asking. But I think about it another way as well. And that is that Jesus asks us the questions that lie beneath our questions. That Jesus gets to the deepest layer of ourselves and our desires to bring life to all of us, to every part of us and to every one of us. And so even as we talk about anticipating Advent, as we talk about waiting and hoping for Jesus, the question I want you to reflect on, the question that I think arises from the passage in Isaiah 9 that we're going to look at in a moment is this. What are you waiting for and what sustains you in the wait? Okay, what are you waiting for and what sustains you in the wait? Because what we're waiting for is what we're paying attention to, what we're uh, striving after, whether that's consciously or unconsciously, that's what we're longing for. And what we do and who we become while we wait is at least as important as what we think we're waiting for. Father Ron Rollheiser says this, it's no easy task to walk this earth and find peace. Inside of us, it would seem something is at odds with the very rhythm of things and we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, aching. We are so overcharged with desire that is what we want that it is hard to come to simple rest. Spirituality, though, is ultimately what we do with that desire. What we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and the hope they bring us, that is our spirituality. Each week, each Sunday for the next few weeks um, in this series, we're going to look at a different passage from uh, the prophet Isaiah. And the reason we'll be in Isaiah is that when early Christians were trying to grapple with and, and trying to figure out who this Jesus was, this resurrected Savior and Deliverer, this person who kept talking about God as his Father and himself as the bringer and proclaimer of God's kingdom, who just didn't fit into their boxes, Isaiah, written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, was one of the main texts which they found answers in. For example, in Isaiah 7, there's, there's this line that says, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. A young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. In Isaiah 11, which we'll hear about next week, Isaiah talks about the shoot coming out from the stump of Jesse, someone coming from the line of David. In Isaiah 40, God proclaims comfort over his people. In Isaiah 61, the characteristics and the practices of the kingdom of God are lifted up. And as we know, it's, it's important for us to, to understand what those words meant in their context. And that's what, one of the things that we've learned from the, the series in Ruth that we just came out of. It's important to understand what the words meant in their context rather than simply lifting them out of the passage and slapping them onto Jesus. So over the, the next few weeks, we're going to look at those la latter three passages to see how our spiritual ancestors uh, anticipated the arrival of the Messiah and also to consider how we might live a life of faithful anticipation as we await Jesus' second coming. So we start today with Isaiah 9. And the first part of this chapter is a vision of hope. It's given to the people of Judah. Um, here's some context, some background. 
At the time, just over 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah was giving counsel to the king of Judah, whose name was Ahaz. Uh, we've, got some, we've got some maps. Um, so we can see the uh, uh, kingdom of Judah is in the south. Um, that's, that's where Isaiah was. And Judah was feeling the encroaching pressure of their northern neighbors, Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and then Aram, even further north than that, as well as the looming superpower of the day, which was the Assyrian Empire. And if we zoom out, that is, so the, the, the realm, the, the area in purple is the, the domain of the Assyrian Empire in 745. The green area is how much they expanded in 30 years. So this was the, the superpower of the day, the Assyrian Empire. And superpowers in those days, they weren't just economic superpowers. They were military superpowers. They overwhelmed with the force of their armies. Best case scenario for someone coming up against Assyria, you cut a deal. Only a few get killed, hefty tribute is paid, and they impose their gods, their culture, their lordship. Worst case scenario, decimation, destruction, exile. So the people of Judah are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Not only are they, the people, at the mercy of, of these, these foreign powers, they're also at the mercy of their king, Ahaz. They don't, they don't know what he's going to do. They don't know what he's going to choose. Uh, spoiler alert, King Ahaz would throw in his lot with the big dog and cut a deal. He would rat out his neighbors and essentially say to Assyria, Hey, 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 Israel and Aram are trying to get us to partner with them to fight you, but if we swear fealty to you, um, we'll help you get them. This is sort of like one of the mice teaming up with the cat to knock off the other mice. Uh, always ends well. And that's sort of what happened. Assyria conquered Aram and Israel and folded them into the empire and, and the kingdom of Judah was relatively unharmed. And in one way of looking at it, that's a very savvy dealing by their king, but that's not how God saw it. In 2 Kings 16, we read that Ahaz, king of Judah, didn't do what was right in the Lord's eyes, unlike his ancestor David. After the defeat of Israel and Aram, Ahaz ended up adopting many elements of Assyrian worship, bringing them back into the temple in Jerusalem, which dishonored God. Because we always lose something of ourselves when we try to cut deals with bad people. So in, in Isaiah 7:14, which I mentioned earlier, where Isaiah says, therefore the Lord will give you a sign, and this young woman is pregnant, and she is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The context is that Isaiah is having a conversation with Ahaz. He's urging him not to cut this deal. He's urging him instead to trust God. This is what verses 15 and 16 say right after that. He, this son that is, that is born, will eat butter and honey and learn to reject evil and choose good before the boy learns to reject evil and choose good, the land of the two kings you dread, that is Israel and Aram, will be abandoned. Okay, in other words, Isaiah is saying, look, I know it's hard for you to trust God in the face of all that you're facing, but if you do, if you do trust God, in the time it takes for a child to be born and learn good from evil, these two enemies that you are so afraid of will be no more, and that child whose name Emmanuel means God is with us will be evidence of that very truth. That's what, that's what he's saying in the context. And then in chapter 8, God reveals to Isaiah the destruction that is about to befall those other nations. But he also reminds Isaiah that he is a sanctuary for his people, that he is with them, that he will not abandon them. And these words are in chapter 8, and I love these. Uh, they seem so appropriate for, for our day as well. 
The Lord spoke to me, said Isaiah, taking hold of me and warning me not to walk in the way of this people. Don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear and don't be terrified. It is the Lord of the heavenly forces whom you should hold sacred, whom you should fear and whom you should hold in awe. Now, we may not face the, the threat of uh, neighboring nations or of being wiped out as some in our world still do, but we all feel the pressure to give in to fear, to do whatever it takes to survive, to turn aside from God for a more instant fix or a distraction from the larger problems of life, whether it's at home or at work, in larger society or in our city, in your family or in your personal life. We all deal with the temptation to succumb to anxiety and despair especially when we don't know how we're going to turn around a situation that seems hopeless. Maybe it's parenting. My wife and I became parents this year, and it has been a joy, but it is also hard. And it's okay to say that. Being married is hard. Being single is hard. Everybody's going through something. Everybody's wrestling with something. Maybe it's, it's your finances. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's uh, the students in your classroom. Maybe it's the administration of your school. Uh, maybe it's, it's politics. Maybe it's the change you want to see in the world that you're working so hard to reach, but you can only do so much. Maybe it's a change you want to see in your own life, a relationship that you just can't repair, a hurt that you can't seem to heal from, Maybe it's literally anxiety or depression. Maybe it's an addiction that you just can't break. Everyone's going through something, and that's one reason we've we, we got to be gracious with one another. Everyone's going through something. So what's weighing on you? What pressures are you feeling? Or to go back to that question, what are you waiting for? And what sustains you in the wait? All of this is leading up to our passage in Isaiah 9 where God shows the prophet a vision and the language is in the past tense as if it's already happened. But we know it's a vision because of what comes at the end. So the, the, chapter 9 verse 2 says, the, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch dark land, light has dawned. The literal translation of pitch dark is death's shadow. On those living in the shadow of death, light has dawned. Anyone heard that phrase before? The shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 23. Death's shadow is, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a poetic way of saying it's hella dark. That's what it feels like. It feels like the weight of death is on you. The weight of uncertainty, the weight of darkness, the weight of, of unclarity, the weight of despair. And here in this verse, what's being conveyed is, is that time when that weight is lifted off. As light dawns, as folks on the road see the sun peeking over the horizon. Writer Anne Lamott says, hope begins in the dark. Hope begins in the dark. Stubborn hope that if you just show up and, and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. 
You wait and watch and work. You don't give up. See, the thing about the folks in that verse, in verse 2, they are walking in darkness. They keep on walking. And there's an element in which we keep walking. We don't give up. Because this is the hope of the vision. Verse 6, a child is born to us. Again, the language is, is actually in the, in the past tense. A child has been born to us. A son has been given to us. And the authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We'll come back to that name, but, but this is where the text shifts to the future tense. Verse 7, there will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing it and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty, the zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. God will do this. God will do this, and God will do this. But what did this prophecy, this vision, this hope mean to the people of Judah in, in Isaiah's time? Because it did mean something for them, and it wasn't just hold on 700 years and then your hope will come. The son's identity actually isn't clear. He isn't given a name that is recorded in history. Now, on this side of Jesus, it's easy for us to say, well, it was clearly a messianic vision that was referring to Jesus. But in the Old Testament, the term Messiah, it's not necessarily used for a redeemer who's going to come hundreds of years later, and certainly not to a divine figure. The Messiah, the anointed one, that's what it means, was understood to be a great political leader who would come from David's line and through whom God will fulfill God's purposes and bring about God's peace on earth. The son of King Ahaz, his name is Hezekiah, is, 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 is one of the nearest people to the vision. Who many, many Jewish folks will, will point to and say, well, he fulfilled a bunch of the, these, and he was right there. He was right there around the time that Isaiah prophesied, and, and actually Isaiah would counsel Hezekiah in the same way he tried to counsel Hezekiah's father. Hezekiah, it says, the Bible tells us, he followed in the ways of the Lord, unlike his father. He cleansed the temple of corruption. He restored the worship as it was meant to happen, and he resisted the power of the Assyrian Empire by trusting in God. And in that way, in that way, he partially lived into the ideals of the Messiah, as Jews understand it. Likewise, several decades later, there was a king called Josiah, who also enacted religious and national reform. And so this is what an Old Testament scholar, John Goldingay, writes. He says, the passage, Isaiah 9, is a vision of what, is God, of what God is committing, committed to achieving through David's line. Now, it receives partial fulfillments in the achievements of kings such as Hezekiah and Josiah, and then a fulfillment in Jesus that is potentially final, even if its potential remains unrealized. And what he means is that because even for, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, who, who, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the whole world, we have to admit that this prophesied reign of endless peace, of unbroken shalom, of right relationships between everybody, well, that's not what we see and experience just yet, right? Sustained justice and righteousness in the world is not yet here. But Golden Gate continues, it thus, because of this, it indicates the agenda which God has made a commitment and gives human beings grounds for hope. This is the vision of God, vision of endless peace and of right relationship, of justice and righteousness. That is still what God is committed to. That is what God has always been committed to. 
And so in a world of, of conflict and turmoil, of injustice, oppression and corruption, of sin and selfishness and self-aggrandizement, where, where it's easy to give in to fear and anxiety and despair, to know that God is still committed to bringing about a world of endless peace and right relationship and justice and righteousness, that encourages me, that gives me hope. And I hope it does the same for you. Uh, I want to talk about the names, the name of, of this, this child who, is, who has been given and what it meant for those uh, hearing Isaiah's words. And to get there, I'm, uh, we're going to take a bit of a roundabout journey. Uh, as long as I can remember, I've, I've been fascinated by names. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, my parents still had on their bookcase this, the book of baby names uh, with all the, the, the meanings, and, and sometimes I'd just flip through um, this is, this is the kind of childhood that I had. I would just flip through the books that were on my parents' bookcase. Um, and so I'd flip through this book and, and, and learn about what these names were and where they came from, what they meant, and so on. And my parents were big on names having meaning. They were sort of a, a prayer of dedication over, over uh, the child. And so my Chinese name is Gei. Gei. Uh, it means Christ's righteousness. Um, my English name, Justin, means just or upright. My middle name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. And um, for me, the names that I was given were something almost to live up to, something to, to live into, uh, sort of like a built-in uh, guiding star. Uh, in the ancient Near East, that is the time of the Old Testament, uh, not only did names have meaning, often they were actually sentences in and of themselves. And so, for example, uh, the Assyrian king who ended up conquering Israel, his name was Sargon, Sargon II. And Sargon's name means the king is legitimate, which is convenient because he, he, he probably usurped the throne from his brother. And so, uh, you know, just to be sure, his name is the king is legitimate, so he's got to be legit. But then in the Bible, you may have noticed there are names um, that have ah or yah or el in them, which are words for God. Uh, Isaiah, Yahweh is salvation. Ahaz was an abbreviation of Jehoahaz, which means Yahweh has held. Hezekiah means Yahweh strengthens. And my son Daniel's name, God is my judge. The term that, that describes these names is theophoric, theos and for us, theophoric means God-bearing. These names bear something of God. They carry something of God. And in a similar way, they serve as a prayer of dedication. But actually, actually, these names have less to say about the person who bears the name and more to say about the one they are pointing to. They are testaments to who God is. They're testaments to what God is like. And so that's what we have here in Isaiah, Isaiah 9. The name of the son who has been given, and it is the name, singular, not the names, plural. The name of the son, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And as a Christian, I've, I've grown up with the terms, you know, just applied wholesale and immediately to Jesus, which is natural because we look from this side of Jesus. But I've always wondered, I've always been like, well, wait, how is Jesus the father? Because that doesn't, that doesn't line up for me. I know that they are one, but in the words of you two, they're not the same. So, and that was just that's honestly something that I, I was like, how do I understand that? And um, some theologians try to get around it. They say that, you know, Jesus is like a father to his people. Okay, I can, 
that feels like a bit of a stretch, but uh, you may have another way of understanding it. I would love to, to hear that. Uh, but what seems to make the most sense here is that what we have is a theophoric name, so a, a name that, that bears and points to the character of Jesus, as there are many examples of in Isaiah, and it's a compound name, so there's two clauses. So a compound theophoric name, which was very much in the style of Isaiah's day. And so John Golden Gate puts it together like this, a wonderful counselor is the mighty God. The everlasting Father is a Prince of Peace. It is something that is a statement about who God is. Now, I didn't, this is, this is new for me in the last few weeks as I've been studying this, and it was, um, you know, not devastating to my faith, but it, because it's, you know, but it was a new way of looking at it that sort of pushed on some long-held assumptions. And um, it's not that, that, you know, oh my gosh, like God is no longer a wonderful counselor or Jesus is no longer, you know, one with God or no longer, you know, the Father is not, you know, none of that is, is, is proved false or rendered moot. But it's a new way of looking at it in a way that respects the way that it was heard by its original hearers. That we're able to say, okay, they knew that this son would be a sign and they named this son something that gave testament to God, that gave glory to God, that said, this is who God is. And now we get to look at it from this side and say, oh, the one who lived that most fully, who embodied that most fully, is Jesus Christ. So understanding that for, for Isaiah's listeners, and his readers, the name was a testament to the character of God. It doesn't diminish our understanding of how it can be applied to Jesus. I, I, I think that it makes it even more amazing because Jesus, more than any other person who has ever lived, embodied the truth of that name. Not just because he was God and is God, so he has a, you know, a leg up there, but also because he lived it out in every moment of his life. That, that the mighty God is a wonderful counselor. That our everlasting Father is committed to shalom. The name is part of the vision that points to a God who is committed, as we've seen earlier, to restoration, to peace, and to presence. What part of that name, what nature of God sustains you in the wait? In giving thanks, we look back. In having hope, we look forward. But in the in-between, that's where we live. That's where we wait. That's where we anticipate. It's not a passive waiting. It's not a lazing on a couch until it's time to act. As Lisa highlighted last week from Ruth's story, it's about living faithfully forward. In light of what's happened and in light of what's not yet happened, but in light of what God is committed to, in light of what we know that God is committed to, we choose, we choose what we commit ourselves to. In Matthew 4, the gospel writer quotes Isaiah 9. He says, Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist was arrested, he went to Galilee. He left Nazareth and settled in Capernaum, which lies alongside the sea in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah said. Land of Naphtali, Land of, uh, and land of Zebulun, alongside the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's verse 1 of chapter 9. The people who lived in the dark have seen a great light. 
and a light has come upon those who lived in the region and in shadow of death. And from that time on, Jesus began to announce, change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. The New Testament writers came to understand Jesus to be the fulfillment of prophecy. Messiah coming in a form they hadn't quite expected, who brought a peace they hadn't quite expected, both in terms of his, his commitment to, to nonviolence during his life and then also in how he achieved ultimate peace through his death. Jesus, in his own life and ministry, came to show that he was the herald and the inaugurator and the bringer and the king of the kingdom of heaven that that was the light that had come, the light people have been waiting for, the hope breaking into the darkness. Christmas marks the moment that Jesus entered our world, making a beachhead to redeem the world for God, to turn all things right again, to establish an endless peace, the beginning of an endless peace, and of justice and of righteousness. And of course, the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. As Christians, we celebrate Christmas as Jesus' first advent, when the kingdom broke into reality, but we look forward to the second advent, his return, when he promises all things will be made new fully, and we will see fully, and we will be restored fully. And this vision of Isaiah 9 will be established fully. This is the vision that God is committed to, the vision God calls us to commit to, invites us to, to commit to. Over the next few weeks, uh, there are a number of ways you have the opportunity to anticipate Advent. Every week, we'll take communion here together, uh, remembering what Jesus did for us and reminding ourselves of who we are called to be, the body of Christ. Uh, except next week, when we'll have community lunch, which takes the place of that, <coughs> takes a different form of fellowship and family together. Every week, we have prayer counselors available for you to respond by committing some part of your life or all of your life to the goodness and care of God. Every week you can take these, these, these Advent cards, or every day you can take these Advent cards and these candles. You can practice cultivating an awareness of God. Carving out time in a world that tells you you don't have enough. You can prepare by giving, to the Advent offering, a measure of resistance and solidarity with uh, organizations that we believe are, are, are doing this active work of anticipating, of envisioning God's future and reality. Um, ultimately, though, it's about preparing for Christ. It's about preparing our hearts for Christ, the one who shows us what God is like, the one who is, he is a wonderful counselor. He is one who shows that God is mighty, one who shows that God is the everlasting Father, who shows that He is the Prince of Peace. So what are you waiting for? What sustains you in the wait? What do you need to ask God for in this season? Would you pray with me? I want to end with a, a poem and a prayer by theologian Walter Brueggemann. It's called The Grace and the Impatience to Wait. The Grace and the Impatience to Wait. In our secret yearnings, we wait for your coming. 
And in our grinding despair, we, we doubt that you will. And in this privileged place, we are surrounded by witnesses who yearn more than do we. And by those who despair more deeply than do we. Look upon your church and its pastors in this season of hope, which runs so quickly to fatigue. And in this season of yearning, which becomes so easily quarrelsome. Give us the grace and the impatience to wait for your coming to the bottom of our toes, to the edges of our fingertips. We do not want our several worlds to end. Come in your power and come in your weakness, in any case, and make all things new. Amen.